If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is the opioid epidemic? How did it start? And what effect has it had on America? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. So I'm sure you've heard the phrase opioid epidemic in the headlines at some point. And for years now, we've seen just how much it's been affecting the nation. Just this month, a massive settlement has been underway between Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma, the states and thousands of local governments faced with a crisis responsible for the death of over half a million Americans over the last two decades. In case you missed it. The Sackler family, who are the owners of Purdue Pharma, said they never did anything wrong and they also never faced charges. But they have agreed to give up ownership of the $10 billion Purdue Pharma and will pay $4.5 billion for the company to be rebuilt. Now, the remainder of that money, by the way, will be used to fight the epidemic. Some people are happy about it. Some people are still outraged. To figure out what happens next, we have to go back to the origins of all of this and discuss how this epidemic spread so rapidly across the nation. So here to talk me through all of it is Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and the Yale New Haven Hospital Physician-in-Chief, Dr. D'Onofrio, you're known around the globe for your work with substance abuse disorders. It's such a noble thing to do. You're helping so many people. So let's just start with this and get to the basics. What exactly is an opioid? Sure. So... You know, opiates are what people thought of probably in the past as narcotics. And when we say the word opioid, we mean like kind of morphine type things and medications that treat moderate to severe pain. So what you might think of those are things like uh, morphine and codeine, which are kind of naturally occurring coming from the opiate plant. Those are called opiates. Opioids take in everything. So all the drugs that are synthetically um, made and distributed. So things like fentanyl, things like oxycodone, oxycontin, which people know as Percocet or hydrocodone, which people know as Vicodin or Lortabs. So all that anyone would think of as a narcotic, that includes tramadol as well, by the way, um, are all in this whole group of, of drugs that are called opioids. Got it. And then what what are the most common ones? I know you listed a bunch there, but uh, when we talk about the opioid crisis, what are we usually talking about? Sure. Well, there's been an evolution, really, of the drivers of opioid deaths um, and overdoses in the last uh, few years, um, where it originally had started out that it was mostly pills in, in rural areas and some suburban. We've now, unfortunately, escalated from heroin to fentanyl and now even adding um, certain drugs on top of fentanyl. So the most uh, worrisome ones are these synthetic ones, such as fentanyl, because it's like 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. 
Okay, and then, so, you know, this is this is obviously a conversation we've been having for a while, uh, the opioid crisis. It's, it's a really sad thing that we're dealing with. Um, and when you Google it, a thousand different things come up, different articles and, and all of that. So can you just tell me, um, just kind of, again, getting back to the basics, what we know about the opioid crisis? Sure. Well, what we know, unfortunately, is it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. Um, That every day I wake up, I feel like, what am I doing? I'm spending a lot of my life with a lot of people around the country who are trying to do prevention and treatment. And uh, all I know is that things are escalating. And uh, right now, this just this past year, we know that almost 70,000 people lost their lives Mm -hmm. with an opiate overdose. That is literally over 190 people a day. Now, that is just due to opiates. There's a lot more that are dying from overdoses in general. That's like more than 93,000. But just for opiates, we are losing we are losing the battle, um, which is unfortunate with covid. um, We found that that epidemic, that pandemic has really added on to the epidemic of our opiate overdoses. And so we are seeing more and more. We are also having this huge escalation of overdoses in the Black and and Latinx community. And they are now, um, really, that rate has gone up higher than we have in the white population, the Caucasian population. Why is that? Um, You know, I I don't know uh, for 100% sure, but I think that um, it's now gotten out to everyone where it started in a small community of maybe using pills. It's now reached out to larger communities. And these communities often are, um, they're vulnerable populations. And these vulnerable populations were more um, more uh, vulnerable to using, um, to using drugs. And we're trying to find out really quite truthfully now, what are these things that, what are these mediators that have created this? Um, and I, I think because now it's becoming a much more inner city problem and because of fentanyl, it's cheap. It's really uh, inexpensive. It's so much cheaper than to buy a pill on the black market, you know, which might be $25 a pill. These are literally dollars because fentanyl is so easy to manufacture. When you think about heroin, even you had to, you know, develop an opiate plant in a country. You had to get that opiate plant and make it into um, heroin after it was made to heroin and had to be transported. Um, And here we can make them, it's unfortunately being made in labs um, or transported and it's a much smaller volume. So you can send large, large amounts and not be detected, for example. So I think now we're getting into all communities. We're getting to a lot of urban areas as well. and it's really unfortunate that that's the case. And we're 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 trying every day to prevent more deaths. Right. And, you know, you bring up some of those numbers, uh, doctor, you know, those are staggering. Seventy thousand people, one hundred ninety people a day. I mean, how do we get here? Has fentanyl always been I know we're not just talking about fentanyl when we talk about the crisis, but has it always been so cheap? I mean, how did we get to this point? Uh, no, it hasn't always been so cheap. It's it was um Unfortunately, as I'm sure the audience has heard that in the initial stages and drivers of this epidemic, there was a lot of um, overriding of prescriptions. There were prescriptions to people for what they thought was pain, what initially acute pain. People then unfortunately 
had became very physically dependent on these and then went out and got them um, on the black market. So that really happened. People had muscular skeletal, you know, problems, all types of things like that. People were just randomly given. And we all know that from the Purdue um, Mm -hmm. mess that they were really pushing this out to physicians too. And physicians were giving it out more people who had orthopedic surgeries. It was not uncommon for people to get three months worth of medications, which is ridiculous. We didn't know any of this. So then we started to learn about that. And then um, it just, it just mushroomed from there and went to heroin and all the people who were using pills found that they could use heroin. Now, what is actually the structural problems in the U S that are causing our young, our young population to even try this? That's a more complicated problem, right? These are people who are for some reason isolated during COVID um, or some types of despair or some types of, economic and social issues. We are finding more people are homeless, more people are just turning to other things. Um, But that again is a real structural issue and inequities in our healthcare system and in just the way people you know, are treated economically, et cetera. That is interesting because I think a lot of uh, the conversation surrounds young people, adolescents, um, you know, that that are kind of getting into this. And it is really tragic to hear about. Uh, real quickly, I want to get back to one thing that you said about the overprescribing. For our listeners who don't know, um, you know, can you just go through what benefit there is for a physician to overprescribe? Like, are they getting kickbacks if that prescription is filled? How does that work? Uh, well, hopefully not. We, we physicians do not in, in general get any kickbacks for anything. I think that uh, initially there's always some bad apples. There were pill mills that were created that people did go to and said, oh, just go here and we'll make, and they made money for the patients coming in for appointments. So there were always some bad actors uh, but there also were lots of physicians who were told in um, in pharmaceutical uh, conversations and, you know, often pharmaceutical people, when a new medication comes out, they talk to physicians about this is the new medicine and they would go out to the community and, and spread the word. And that was done very inappropriately. And people thought, oh, we have something, another medication to give to people that will do better. I can remember, you know, years ago where people, I was taught like, you know, I should tell a patient, you know, I always have more pain medicine than you have pain. And that was the way we were told. We were told we wouldn't give out enough medicine, that we should give more people. Why weren't we giving more people medicine for their pain? Now we actually know that and very carefully that that's a bad thing to do. Mm. And that these opiates are great. When people have surgery, when something acutely happens, you break your leg. You're going to be in a lot of pain, right? You need them. When you have your knee replaced or your, you know, whatever, you need some medicine, but you only need it for a very short period of time. You don't, these medicines do not work over long periods. We have to come up with some better alternatives and we are, but we have a long way to go to come up with because people. There's a lot of people with chronic pain around the country. These are real issues and we need to come up with better ways of treating it than just giving out these opioids. All right, we got to step aside real quickly, but class will be back in session right after this.
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You know, I, I do have a question. Um, you know, I've gotten a few surgeries myself, and I never really took the the things that I was prescribed. I kind of just loaded up on the Advil. Um, so what is it about opioids that are so addictive that makes people want them um, when they don't even have pain? Is there like a what, what yeah, effect does it have on you? That's a really great question. And we all, because of our genetics, have different responses. So similarly, like uh, you, I, I've gotten them like 30 years ago. I had triplets, right? I, oh, my I gosh. I them because I had a C-section. And I can remember saying to myself, why? I can't take these. Like my mother's helped me. I said, all they do is put me to sleep. I have three babies. Okay, this is not happening. <laughs> so I'm, I need to take the Advil because personally, it just did the same to me. I would just, I have just felt at any time I took it a very down response. It wasn't really helping. So unless you're having major surgery and you can go to sleep, I found no absolutely no benefit. Mm-hmm. However, there are people who um, will take one and oh, they have this unbelievably wonderful feeling, right? Because we have receptors in our brain that react to these medications and they're part of our reward system. And why is it that certain people who take these go, oh my God, I love this. I, I need more, right? Mm. It, it's like alcohol in, in quite truthfully, there's a lot of genetic propensity. And when people have that genetic propensity for a problem with alcohol use disorder, you'll find that they start very early in life. They start take, they start drinking early and they could drink anyone under the table, right? They don't stop until they're down on the ground. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? I don't know, but that is a genetic, there is a genetic propensity for addiction. It's built into our reward system in the brain. And and we, why people take it and then they can't stop taking it. I don't know. So that's why we want people to be aware of it. This could happen to you. That's why we only give out now a few uh, pills for a disease process or a pain process and then say, if you need more, let's think about this. Um, But it is very different from patient to patient. It's also, you could have taken a couple and been fine. And then later on, you take some more or needed it for a little longer. And then you find yourself feeling, oh my God, I need this. Mm. I need it because I don't feel well. And most people who take drugs, by the way, after that initial euphoria, which really only lasts for a few weeks, um, you're just taking more of it so you don't feel bad. You're not taking it to feel high. You're you're not withdrawing, right? So when you see people on the street and you say, oh, that person is, you know, got a horrible addiction to something, they're not taking it. So they're getting up feeling great. Oh, I'm going to get high today. They're taking it. 99% of the time because they're trying not to feel sick because now they need it. If they don't, uh, opiate withdrawal is horrific. It's probably the most horrible thing that anyone can go through. So they are just trying to find their next amount of drugs so that they will not feel sick. That's a fascinating point that you just made because 
you're thinking. I mean, when you when you I've never done a drug in my life, but you know, I could imagine that you know you you, you want to chase that high. You want to keep doing it because it makes you feel great. But I didn't even think about the point that at some moment that can end. You just have to stay afloat and not go through withdrawal. How how much does it take? Um, like how long do you have to be taking an opioid to get withdrawal symptoms if you stop? Well, it depends on how much you're taking. So if you're just taking a few a day, it's going to take you, you know, a month or so. Mm. Uh, Some people who are taking massive amounts, it could take two or three weeks. Um, And that's true of everybody. You know, people who are taking prescribed opioids, say you have cancer, a horrible cancer, right? And you're in a lot of pain. Um, You have the physical dependence for it and you will need it and you will withdraw if you're not getting it. And, you know, now that we're doing great with cancers and we can cure a lot of things or make things more chronic diseases. Now we're finding out that we need to take those individuals and to wean them off. But that is different than addiction. So I just want to make this clear addiction that what's the hallmark of addiction is really loss of control. Right. So you're taking something um, that, you know, you're going to do this no matter whether it's hurting me or not, whether I have severe consequences, like I just did something bad. I didn't take care of my child. I just got in a car when I know I shouldn't have Um, you just that loss of control continuing to use it, even though you have consequences that you know about it and continually craving it, your body is the hallmark of addiction. Right. It isn't the dependence and the tolerance. Everyone who takes an opiate for a long period of time is going to be dependent and tolerant to it. Everyone. And that could be because you're really getting it prescribed for some horrific disease. People who have sickle cell, for example, who have a lot of crises may always be on some level of a medication. That doesn't mean they have an addiction. The addiction is based on doing these consequential things. So you're going out and getting it off the street because your doctor's not giving it to you. You are um, stealing it from anybody's, you know, um, medicine cabinet. You are um, doing everything, even when people, you know, talk to you and say, you can't do this anymore. Let me help you. Let me get you. You don't want anything to do about it. You're losing your work. You're losing your um, friendships, your your, you know, your significant others are kicking you out of the house. There, there's all kinds of consequences and you don't really care. Um, that's the hallmark of addiction. So, okay. And then if, if that's the hallmark of addiction and, and you see that you're, you're taking opioids, you're, it's kind of ruining your life. Do right. we know anything about what the best treatment is for opioid addiction? We do. And that's what's so frustrating to me is that we do have the science behind it. And it's very hard to get individuals engaged in treatment. So I'll tell you that why that is. So um, for number one, we know that what we call opiate agonists, those are methadone and buprenorphine, buprenorphine, often known as Suboxone. Um, That's one company. There are several companies that make it, uh, Butex, whatever. So We know very, very scientifically, massive amount of studies that when we put people on these medications, individuals will do better. What do I mean by that? They will stop taking illicit meds because you remember that every time someone goes out and buys a drug on the street, it's not a pharmacist. You don't know what that is. You think you're buying heroin, you're buying fentanyl right now. Um, you think you're buying it, you're using a certain amount of fentanyl. You don't know that because they might have laced it with something else. So something is less or something is more. So um, every time that someone uses that, they have potential to die. So we know that with these opiates, first of all, 
these opiate agonists um, are given by doctors. They um, go on these receptors. They will prevent you from overdosing. Buprenorphine will prevent you from overdosing because it only has a, a, a kind of a leveling off. Um, not the case with methadone. You can probably add more meds onto that. But we know that it stops illicit use. We know that it stops transition transmission of bad uh, infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. We know it does that. We know it keeps people out of jail. Um, We know it helps them with forming relationships um, with people and getting people's life back again. Um, We know it works. We see it work. What we have to do more is to get people wanting to use it. And then we have to figure out how to retain people into treatment because there are two myths. These are the things that are biggest issues. Families often say to to these individuals, I don't want you getting that treatment. It's just substituting one drug for another. Well, that is the farthest thing from the truth. These are medications. They are prescribed by doctors. They are given in certain amounts and people are followed up with different levels of care associated with those. They're not drugs on the street. These are true medications. So we have to get this stigma about, um, oh, you're just going to go use that other drug that the doctor's giving you. That's not the case. So we have to get over that because that is the number one reason why people are not seeking treatment. They hear that all the time. The other thing is that um, a lot of people will just say, oh, they they don't have enough willpower. If they just wanted to, they could stop. Uh Well, because this is such a powerful disease in the brain, and once that, that reward system gets activated, is this is, you have no way of doing this on your own. So a lot of people say, I know I see people, they overdose and they just don't want treatment. And they'll go, I know what I did. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, I'm going to be careful. And they really have all those reasons they think they're going to. But it's a physiological problem. They will not be able to do that. They will get out of the ED and within 30 minutes, they'll use again when they start to withdraw and when their brain cycles in. So we have to somehow get people so that they are not stigmatized by saying that they want to have treatment with medication and that it is not something you can will yourself out of this. And so people feel really bad if they, if they return to use they they feel like they are really letting a lot of people down. We know that this may happen, but you know what, if that happens, then we need to give you more services. We need to figure out what it is that we can do for you because medicine itself is not everything. Mm-hmm. It's a starter, but we need medicine. We, you might need some counseling. You might need a, a partner to help you. We, we have lots of different intensive outpatient treatments, but we just know we need to escalate that care, but there are very good treatments and we just need to get people to want to take those treatments. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in those physiological effects. I mean, like you said, I mean, it's, it's not just simply saying, Oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. Your body is, is reacting to it in a way too, that you can't necessarily control. Um, So I guess my question on that is too, like these treatments that you're talking about, what do those do to your reward system? That you that you mentioned. I mean, is, does it affect your brain differently than the opioid? It obviously does, but how? It is an opiate. These are opiates. Okay. They are. They are all. They are methadone and, and buprenorphine are both a category of opioids. Got but it. But they are different in that the way that they um, work. They're longer act. They're much longer acting. They are prescribed, and they will sit on those receptors. 
And the good thing about buprenorphine, people will say, why one or the other? They're both very good. Buprenorphine can be given out by doctors, by emergency physicians, by primary care doctors who have um, a special waiver to get those. And now it's becoming easier and easier. This administration has made it very easy to get these for doctors. And so you're going to a doctor's office. So it's not very stigmatizing, right? And and you go a couple of times, you get on a proper dose, and then you might get a your prescription for like a month, and then you might get them for several months, right? So you might do very well on it. Um, though it's there's with buprenorphine, there's just a certain level I can get people to. And, and if you're using a tremendous amount of drug and I can't override that with this, you might need methadone because my methadone, I can keep giving more and more amounts of it until I can get you out of craving and wanting to use um, illicit drugs on top of the methadone. So um, that's that's why we choose one or the other. One is also... Buprenorphine is more expensive. People need about $16 a day. So um, insurance, including Medicare, Medicaid in most states will pay for this, but not in all states, um, you know, depending on if they have a Medicaid expansion, will pay for it. And, but there's a lot of, um, the government is giving out a lot of money to all the departments of public health all over the country so that there are more opportunities for people to go. In methadone, you have to go to a methadone approved opiate treatment program that SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has approved. They are not always available. There are certain deserts of these in parts of the country, and that's why it's really complicated. And you, and before COVID, you had to go there every day for your medication and take it right there. Um, fortunately, one, one positive light of COVID was that they allowed people to take take-homes. And that was a tremendous uh, boost of keeping people in treatment. Because you can imagine if you're a mother with children that you can't like go every day and get on a bus and drive an hour to get this medication and back. If you have a job, you can't say, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm going to be late because I got to go stand in line and get my medication. So um, it's COVID has really allowed for more take-homes. It's allowed for more people to do telemedicine because really in addiction, I can, most of the time I can just talk to you on the phone. I can see you, I can talk to you. I don't need to actually examine you in many ways, unless you have complications related to um, addiction, like infections, et cetera, obviously then you need to go somewhere. But we do know that all those complications of overdose and soft tissue infections really are reduced if you're on this opiate agonist methadone or buprenorphine. And it's great to know that there are treatments. You know, I mean, of course, like we've come so far with technology and science and medicine, and and that is such a a hopeful thing when talking about the opioid crisis. And, um, you know, I do want to go back to something that you said about the fentanyl, because, you know, I unfortunately know a few people from college who, um, you know, died from an overdose. And some of the conversation was, you know, maybe that was laced what they were doing was laced with fentanyl. Um, you know, fentanyl can be in anything, right? I mean, it can be in cocaine. It can be in recreational drugs. Is, is that right? Absolutely. And here in New Haven, 
a couple of years, well, even just recently in the last few months or so, we had um, several people, two out of three die, one get very severely ill and two people died. These three people had just found some white powder at work and they took it thinking, I'm sure they thought they were cocaine. It was cocaine and they two died and one um, survived after a long illness. So it's, um, and prior to that, we had a couple of years ago, we had a, a cocaine stash tainted with um, fentanyl and we had about, oh, more than 20 people come to the ED. We had three deaths. Um, and so all you know when you see white powder is it's white powder. It could be talcum powder. It could mm. be, um, you know, it could be laced with, it could be something like one of these things that give you diarrhea, right? right. It, could be, it could be cocaine or it could be fentanyl. You have absolutely no idea what it is. So we are trying to press on harm reduction. So if people are using drugs to test a very tiny bit of it first to see what it is, like if it's cocaine, someone's testing a tiny little bit of it, is this what it is? Do never use alone. Always use with someone else. Always someone around you has to have naloxone, the antidote. And we give that out every time someone comes in with an overdose or is using, we give them free. We're very fortunate in Connecticut. We give them, we got it from the Department of Public Health. We give them a free Narcan reversal mm, kit. That's great. And people will say to me, why are you giving it to me? I'm the one who just overdosed. I said, because I want you to have it. Keep it around you. Let your friends know you have it. Keep it out. Make sure you have it. There are fentanyl test kits, these dips that you um, individuals can get. Sometimes the needle exchange programs have them. Sometimes you can buy them places. They may or may not be perfect, but um, sometimes individuals can test it um, and see if, in fact, there's fentanyl in it. But one really has to be careful. You know, there are all kinds of things we know of that people got pills. It's not just white powder. People get pills. They look exactly like a Percocet. Exactly. Right. All the numbers are on it. When I've seen them, I, you would not be able to tell the difference. So they think they're buying these off the, you know, the dark web. Yeah. And they get them and they take one and they die. And it makes sense for the whoever's making it is because it goes back to our earlier conversation about how cheap fentanyl is. So, you know, you add fentanyl in there is less of the expensive stuff. Um, you know, it, it benefits them. Uh, so then what is it about fentanyl that makes it so dangerous? It's so powerful. It's, as I said, it's like 50 times more than heroin and 100 times more than morphine. So one little little amount of it will kill you. Um, if we took it and we, we don't have an obese disorder or aren't on chronic, we would just die a tiny bit and we would die, right? So somebody who is tolerant could take a little bit more to an opioid. But when these people, individuals who think they're using cocaine, they are not tolerant to opioids, right? If they're not using opioids too. So now they take any bit and they're going to die because it's so powerful. Fentanyl is a, it's a great medication when it's pharmaceutical. We use it in the emergency department all the time because it's a, it's fast acting. It's a, we can control it. And if we need to do something that will cause extreme pain initially, like a hip is out and has to get back in place, or we have to do a procedure that's very painful, we may use this. Um, but that's in a controlled setting where we know exactly how much we're giving because it's pharmaceutical grade. We know people are oxygen saturations. There's nurses at the bedside at all times. We're always watching so that if we need to um, do anything like give some assist 
to breathing that we are able to do it. Um, and so it's a, it's a very nice medication when it's done in a hospital setting, not outside the hospital. Okay. Yeah. It, it, that, I mean, it's great that you guys can monitor it, but you know, unfortunately people are out there not being monitored. Right. Like you, like you said, um, I'll ask a, uh, this is probably like a little bit of a naive question, but when you were talking about how these drugs look just like, you know, a Percocet or, you know, it could be white powder, but there could be fentanyl in there. Um, so, like, if you saw, I've never, I've honestly, like, never even seen cocaine. So, it, it's not different in color or anything. Like, no, people just no, absolutely no. would not be able to know. No, take some, take some talcum powder. Right. 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 Interesting. It's, it's, you know, people have been laced by things like that or other, you know, things in their heroin of, of drug dealers who want to make more money. For example, they might put anything in there that's a white powder. And they've always done that traditionally. Um, it's not a good business plan for people to kill off their clientele. So um, many times they don't know or they're just giving a little bit more. Many times where they get it from, they don't know where it is. Um, because these are not regulated. These are not pharmaceutical medications that we give out in the hospital. These are truly drugs that are manufactured in some place. Um, I do want to just say one other thing that I'll forget. There is one other medication that I don't want to never talk about. It's called um, naltrexone. Naltrexone is a medication that we use for alcohol use disorder and can be used in obesity disorder. It is just like the word sort of sounds like um, naloxone, the antidote. Mm-hmm. It is an antagonist. So it cannot be given to anybody who is currently using um, or withdrawing. They have to wait for days to go through that withdrawal state, and then you can give it. Right. Um, the negative parts about that medication, which I'm not a total fan of to start with, is that it is an antagonist. So you're not on anything. So if you do start using again, you will die because now you are not tolerant in opioid. So I don't, it's not my first go to. It's nothing that we would use in a mercy department because it's something that's given later. I'm not saying it's not something that can be used, but I want to get this one point across is that the physical dependence, I can, we, you can go to a, um, a medically managed detoxification place or any other inpatient place or outpatient, and I can help you over three or four days by giving you a bunch of other different medicines that are not opioids. I can get you over that horrific um, dependent withdrawal state. I can do that, right? In three or four days with the right proper um, medications, it's not going to be great. It's not going to feel great, but I can do that too. And anyone can get over that. The problem is that doesn't affect my brain, that those receptors in the brain are still wired for opiates and you will crave them. So the most um Difficult time and where we know where most overdoses occur is when people are either let out of a controlled setting like jail or they are re- or they get out of the 30 day rehab. That is the time where people die because I haven't fixed those pathways. I don't really know when those pathways go back to normal, if ever. Right. So the use of naltrexone is worrisome in that people can overdose and die. Now it's not that it's not a 
great thing. People might be on buprenorphine for a while, or maybe they really didn't use that much, or there's, there's other circumstances about people's lives that they're totally perfect. There's no triggers, you know? And so maybe naltrexone might be okay for them. I don't want to tell you that it's not because there are some caveats to it, but it's not the medication I would go to right at first. And the reason I'm saying that is because many families will say, oh, that's not an opiate. So I want that one. Oh, okay. It's, 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 in in some respects, laced with problems. Okay. So is that, sorry to interrupt. Is that the main reason why people like, why would you choose to use an antagonist versus an antidote? Well, because some people will totally refuse. They'll say, I'm not taking that. I'm not going to use um, an opiate agonist like um, like methadone. Or I refuse to go on that. So they may just refuse. And you say, okay, well, this is another medication for you. Oh, All right. Okay. Or they've been on a medication for a long period of time. They want to try to see if they can come off of it. And uh, this might be an option for them. You know, it is in our armamentarium and each individual is different, but I just need to get out there that it's a, a really scary thing. If it were my family member, I wouldn't put them on that medicine to begin with. I would put them on these others and then we would work towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe at some point we could transition. Right. Yeah. So um, it's a lot like maybe like diabetes, for example, people say, oh, why can't we get individuals with obesity or off these meds? Well, if you have, if you have diabetes, that's also a, a very complicated medical disease. You, if you know anyone with type two diabetes, they're either on an oral medication or they're on insulin. How many of those people actually ever get off of that? Well, there's a million behavioral things to do, right? You could lose 50 pounds and keep it off. You could never eat simple carbs. Like I don't, you know, not eat a chocolate or something like that or a birthday cake. You you could always do that, but there's very, very few people who can follow through on that, right? Very, very few. So here we're asking people with, you know, a complex brain disease to say, I'm going to stay off that and I'm never, I'm not going to crave and I'm never going to go back. So it's really, a, it's very really complicated. Difficult. It's very complicated. And I just tell, you know, average people, like, what is the thing you like the most? Like, do you like ice cream? Do you like chocolate? What is it that you like? And then imagine that, you know, people are, you know, you go back to an area where these drugs are, are just prevalent. And every day you're just saying, no, you're saying no 10 times a day. Right. That's not easy to do, particularly even with alcohol use disorder where it's legal. Right. So um, you're telling these individuals not to have any no matter what. So that's why it's more than the medication. I have to think about triggers for the individual. I have to think about if they're going back to a community where it's there. Like if I'm going back to a place where my apartment is and everyone else is using, how am I ever going to stop? How am I going to not see that every single minute, right? If I go to a shelter or I go, you know, to are people using there? And when people, I talk to people with obese disorder all the time and they'll tell me I can't go to that place around the country. I'll go, well, why? They'll say to me, well, it's not safe. And I go like, oh my God, are people have guns? Do they have whatever? They go, no, it's not safe for me because people are using there. And as soon as I see that paraphernalia, as soon as I see that person, as soon as I see them using, I'm going to use. And I know that. Wow. It, it takes a lot in a person to be responsible enough to be like, I can't go there because I'm going to see it. I mean, that that does. It's part of the recovery and I, why it's so difficult. And in, in your opinion, is that why this crisis is so bad? Because you have these um, areas, too. It's like you can't just 
get up and move your house. I mean, you can, you can move, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And imagine the people with the health inequities and the, the vulnerable populations, right? I can't move my apartment. I have to be here. I can't do this. I have, I'm here. Imagine if your family's using and a, a, you know, a sibling is using, a mother is using, a father is using, and this is the only house I have. So if I don't go back there, I'm going to be on the street. Where am I going to put you? Right. God, right. That's so so it's, um, it's very complicated and, and often people with, um, Addictions have mental health disorders as well that make it more complicated. And so we have to treat the mental health disorder as well as the addiction. Mm. Um, And that is not easy. And we need more places for people to be able to go. I need, we need more housing. We need more, you know, low income housing. We need um, more shelters that are safe for people who wanted to not use drugs. Um, We need more job um, training programs for our young individuals. We need to get them into the workforce. Um, we need to get them educated um, because if we do, and they have something else that they are really proud of and and can do, and these are all the you know what we call the determinants of social determinants of health. These are all issues that we have to deal with. So I can't just give out medicines. I have to be able to work at that level as well. Yeah, Dr. D'Onofrio, what are some other things that cause stigma around opioids? So besides what we talked about, that people um, think that they're, you know, using one and substituting one drug for another or families not wanting to engage in what we know is great treatment. um, Words really matter. And this is really important. And we need all of us to, to not identify individuals as addicts or drug abusers or junkies. That is really not helpful, right? We don't say, oh, that diabetic over there or that that heart attack victim over there. So we want to say that these are persons with with opiate use disorder or people with addiction. So it's really important that we use that language. We don't talk about, you know, again, that, oh, these people, they have a problem. They have a disease like any other disease, like diabetes or hypertension. Um, They don't have a habit. They have a drug addiction. And they're not clean or dirty because that really is very, you know, just very awful to talk about people like that. They, they might have, you know, and might have gone to treatment and they might have returned to use um, and they might go into their treatment programs and have a urine that's positive for opiates. But again, that's not a reason to kick them out. That's a reason to escalate their care. And we, tr- we try to say treatment failures, get away from saying, oh, that person has so many, so many failures, blah, blah, blah. No, they've had some treatment attempts. And we anticipate that people will have, this is such a complicated disease, it's not going to work perfectly uh, most of the time. So we expect that they may return to use, but that's okay. If they've been if they've been in treatment for a month for once, the next time they could be in treatment for two or three months. So just we want to make sure that people are in recovery. They're not clean. They're in recovery and that it really matters when we use these um, words that are not helpful and can contribute and create barriers to people accessing care. I've got a question to ask you, but first we've got to step aside for a quick break. We'll be back after this. So, I mean, you bring up a lot of great points. And for someone who, um, you know, doesn't work in the medical field, who doesn't struggle with an addiction of any sort, doesn't know anybody um, who does, I, I mean, just general public, what can 
we be doing to help end this epidemic? Well, number one, we can we can keep our eyes and ears open. OK, and, and a lot of times you'll find individuals that, you know, that might have a problem because I don't know, they're just not doing well. They're just kids that you might know that are dropping out of school or not doing their homework or, you know, they're having difficulties at home. And just we can all look after people and um, see if there's some way we can help a neighbor or anyone. We can also all know um, to call anyone for if you see somebody that's not breathing. Many of us in the medical field will, you know, carry around um, naloxone, Narcan, the antidote, but to know that you want to call immediately to get someone there. Our police, our first responders all have these medications on their hand. We can actually do prevention. We can always talk to our kids. Um, you know, it's really, really important that kids are able to talk to you about things and you don't freak out when they tell you things, right? But that you say, okay, and you, you, you talk about, you know, what these issues are. I think it's really hard to be a parent now whose kids are in high, junior high. It's not just, it's not like high school, it's junior high. It's anywhere. So what do you do if you go into a situation where you see that drugs are being used? What do you do if, um, you see someone that's hurt. You know, we have literally found people not calling uh, police because they were afraid they would get locked up because they were using two. So in many states, but not all states, so you have to know where you're from. In Connecticut, for example, you know, we have um, a, a law that is um, people will not be will not be arrested if they are found with other people that you can go ahead and just call them. Um, and you can call the police and you will not be. It doesn't mean, though, that if you have a warrant out for that, if you have a warrant out for you, mm, yeah. you could be arrested. OK, but there is this um, I'm blanking on the name of it right now. There's um, um, this law that says that you will not be prosecuted um, for calling with anybody if if you're not somebody who has a warrant out on you. But call and then leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just call the police and go. Um, because we don't want so many people see things and they don't say anything about it. Right. Like you'll think later on, geez, if I wonder if I had said something about this, I wonder if I had called about this. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this kid, if I wonder if I and, and the parents rack them their brains out many times because they say, I didn't know it. I didn't see it. You have to know everything your kid is doing and you have to have a good communication and we're doing prevention in schools. We're trying to do that. Um, we're trying to tell them how they can talk to someone. They could talk to a teacher. They could talk to anybody else if they feel like they can't talk to a parent who is in the community that they can speak with. Because this is all of our problem, right? We are the actual, we talk about the life expectancies of, of males have gone down in the U.S. That's due to COVID now, but it has been in the last few years due to these deaths. And so we're losing a huge amount of population of young people that really could have had vital lives and really contributed to the society and to the economic growth of our society. And so that that will hurt all of us. And we're also taking a huge toll on families. We're taking a huge toll on the healthcare system and on monies that are being, you know, just really poured into this, I think. I think everyone is doing a great job in the government and pouring lots of money into trying to 
really either into the National Institute of Health of finding alternatives to narcotics, doing more treatments, um, doing more um, treat, just creating new treatment centers in like things like SAMHSA. So we're pouring in billions. It's $500 billion a year we're losing um, with this drug problem. So it would behoove all of us to try to think about what are things I could do to make this better. Right. And I'm I'm so appreciative that you went through all those ways that people can be helping because it is really easy to watch this crisis unfold and, you know, this this epidemic rage on in our country and feel helpless. So, um, you know, thank you for for going through some of those. And, and it is good to know that we are taking steps in the right direction. And, and hopefully one day we can um, kind of remedy this a little bit if, you know, it's going to be hard. But um, I appreciate everything that you told us. And thanks again for coming on, Dr. D'Onofrio. You were excellent. Had a lot of perfect information because this is very complicated. You put it very simply. So thank you. Okay. Thank you for having me. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the opioid crisis. Number one, opioids obviously are very dangerous, but synthetic opioids like fentanyl are the most addictive and the most dangerous. And what makes them so dangerous is their potency. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin and 100 times more powerful than morphine. A minuscule amount can kill you. Plus, they can be hidden. You can have cocaine that is laced with it and you can't really tell it apart from other powders. And it can also be in pills. So, you know, it can be in so many different things. Number two. The epidemic even goes beyond the awful and tragic consequence of loss of life. America loses around $500 million a year to the opioid crisis due to the costs of health care, loss of productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. And number three, financial, social, and health inequities make opioid addiction very easy and also unavoidable. Many people live in communities where opioid addiction is always around them, both in their home and on the streets, and they can't necessarily afford to move somewhere else or seek treatment, which makes them feel trapped. So this is a very complicated issue. All right. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.